This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the concept of the image of God, Imago Dei, namely the view that humanity is created in or according to the image of God, is probably one of the most intriguing and at the same time most contested categories. Although the text of Genesis in which we find uh, this expression nowhere specifies its meaning, generations of Christian theologians interpreted it in terms of human uniqueness in the created order. Irenaeus of Lyon, a second century theologian, emerged as one of the earliest writers who explored this idea and whose lead contributed significantly to later patristic and medieval elaborations, which are widely discussed in academic literature. The writings of the Apostolic Fathers, on the other hand, do not feature often in these discussions, and hence the focus of my, my today's talk. In what follows, I will first analyze the use of the concept of Imago Dei and related ideas in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, these are uh, usually dated uh, to the second half of the first and uh, uh, the first um, uh, half of the second century CE. So we, are, we will approach these writings in their chronological order. We will start with the writings of First Clement, uh, Barnabas, Diognetus, all of which rehearse the idea of human creation according to the image and likeness of God in their own way. Next, we will deal with, with the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, with his distinctive approach to the image of God. And we will finish uh, with some concluding remarks. So first Clement, or Clement of Rome. He was writing sometime during the last decades of the first century. And he refers to Imago Dei in the middle of his extensive letter. At first he eloquently describes the process of creation of the universe, and then focuses on the formation of human uh, humanity as follows. And you can find uh, the first quotation on your handout. Above all, he says, as the most excellent and by far the greatest work of his intelligence, with his holy and faultless hands, he formed humankind as a representation of his own image. For thus spoke God, let us make humankind in our image and likeness. And God created humankind, male and female he created them. So having finished all these things, he praised them and blessed them and said, increase and multiply. In its large context, this passage addresses the question of good works. 
And Clement uses the creation of the universe as an example of doing something good. Agatopoeia. Um, actually, you can find the Greek text in the footnotes uh, on the handout. Um, it's worth noting that um, the author presents humanity as the apex of the creation, using some remarkable expressions to describe this process. Uh, the two phrases, above all and the most excellent by, the, uh, by far the greatest work, exalt humanity above the rest of creation. And the curious phrase that his holy and faultless hands in reference to God indicates not only the holiness and goodness of the creator, but also of the creature. At this point, the author uses specific expressions which have parallels in the scripture, especially in Genesis 1 and 2. Most probably, Clement invokes the Septuagint here. Before the quotation, however, he uses a unique expression unattested in the scripture, namely uh, the phrase, a representation of his own image. Tes of tu eikonos charactera. This phrase, interestingly enough, does not identify humanity as an image itself, but rather as an expression, character of God's image. Not the image, but expression of God's image. What is the meaning of this expression? What is the image, a con, of which humanity forms an expression or impression, character? Various uh, scholars provide different answers to these questions. In my opinion, it's worth asking first of all the following question. Why does Clement use the phrase this of two iconos charactera to introduce the biblical quotation? It's worth noting that the Greek term character which can be translated as a distinctive mark, uh, style, impression, etc., appears in the Septuagint only three times, namely in Leviticus, 2nd Maccabees, and 4 Maccabees. But none of these passages refer to the creation uh, narrative. At the same time, character occurs only once in the entire New Testament, namely in Hebrews 1.3, with reference to Son, to the Christ, but not to other humans. It's worth noting that this Greek term can be found much more often in writings of Philo, an ancient Jewish author, living in Alexandria at the beginning of the first century CE. In the vast body of his extant works, Philo employs the term more than 50 times in different contexts. 
for our purposes, his comments on the creation narrative are especially useful. Concerning Genesis 1, 26-27, he points out the important difference between the Hebrew expression in the image with Salmo and its Greek translation according to the image, Kateikona. Philo explains that the Greek version implies that human beings, human being is not a direct image, but rather an image of the divine image. He cautions then that the resemblance does not refer to human body, but rather to the mind, the highest level of human soul, which is modeled according to the divine mind. Using similar terminology, Clement appeals, appears to follow the same line of reasoning as Philo. Unlike his Jewish predecessor, however, the Christian author does not clarify the meaning of this enigmatic expression, tes autu eikonos charactera. Clement rather points to a close, intimate relationship between God the Creator and humanity as an impress of God's image, and also as a result of God's special action, which uh, is notably distinct from the rest of the creation process. At the same time, Clement's anthropomorphic language, including the expression with his holy and faultless hands, appears to bridge the gap between God and humanity. So this early Christian author elaborates uh, a very fascinating imagery. Human being is created as an image of God's image, who himself is described with uh, an anthropomorphic language. Unfortunately, Clement does not dwell upon this intriguing topic, but concludes his discourse on creation as follows. So he says, since we have this pattern, let us unhesitatingly conform ourselves to his God's will. Let us with all our strength do the work of righteousness. Clement's overall purpose is to emphasize divine majesty in order to urge the audience to submit to God's will. And in this context, he emphasizes the importance of good works, offering as an example God's creation of the world with humanity as the focal point of that creation. The author then switches to yet another example of good works. This is the reason why he does not develop the idea of Imago Dei any further. So in First Clement, the creation of humanity as a representation of God's own image appears as a fascinating dynamic concept, which echoes both the Septuagint and non-biblical um, uh, writings, specifically Philonic ones, but it remains largely 
unexplored. Similarly to first Clement, the letter of Barnabas invokes Imago Dei by directly quoting what later Christians called the Old Testament, but which the author simply refers to as the scripture. With a variety of introductory formulas, he cites what appears to be the Septuagint. Uh, the passage runs as follows. And furthermore, my brothers and sisters, if the Lord submitted to suffering for our souls, even though he is Lord of the whole world, to whom God said at the foundation of the world, let us make humankind according to our image and likeness, how is it then that he submitted to suffer at the hand of humans? Both the opening expression and the direct speech are taken from Genesis 1.26a, similarly as um, in the case of First Clement. However, unlike the latter, uh, presenting the same scriptural passage as a divine creative pronouncement, Barnabas introduces this speech as an address directed towards the Lord, who is, in this case, distinct from God. The context sheds more light on this passage in which creation of humanity is presented as part of divine conversation between God, the Father, and the Lord, the Son. In view of this, the personal pronoun our uh, in this quotation uh, should not be interpreted as pluralis majestatis or as a self-address of God towards himself, but rather as a reference to both the Father and the Son. This has the implication for the understanding of the passage, the image and likeness, which in this context clearly refers to both the Father and uh, the Son. Further on, the author reiterates the statement as follows. For the scripture speaks about us, namely humans, when God says to the Son, let us make humankind according to our image and likeness, and let them rule over the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And when he saw that our creation was good, the Lord said, increase and multiply and fill the earth. These things he said to the Son. In comparison to first Clement, Barnabas offers more extensive quotations of the Septuagint in this passage. At the same time, um, the letter adds here an intriguing comment saying that uh, the scripture speaks about us, um, which interestingly in this context refers uh, not to humanity as a whole, but specifically to Christians. Um, it's worth noting that uh, while the previous passage um, uh, expressed the idea that 
the image and likeness are those of God, the Father, and of the Son. This second passage points to the creature. It um, emphasizes on the creature, uh, which according to Barnabas are uh, Christians in plural. Um, and so in the first passage, we note the duality of, of the creator. Um, and in the second passage, the plurality of the creature. Barnabas adds then that God saw the creature, that the creature was good, which gives the reason for the subsequent divine blessing of the creature. The use of plurals in this context is somewhat confusing as it begs questions um, such as, does the expression image and likeness presuppose here some sort of relationship um, similar to that of the father and the son? And if so, would the creation uh, would the creation story as presented by Barnabas refer to, to the creation of humanity or to the creation of the church if he speaks about Christians? The author unfortunately stop, stops short of explaining his view of the matter. Instead, he adds immediately, Again, I will show you how the Lord speaks to us. He made a second creation in the last days, and the Lord says, Behold, I make the last things as the first. So Barnabas uh, develops the idea of the second creation, or rather a renewal of the first creation, with the focus on Christology, namely the renewal brought by Jesus Christ. In this context, the author does not recall the concept of Imago Dei, leaving the reader with unresolved questions, as it were. Next, Diognetus. The epistle of Diognetus, which is usually classified as an early apology, written in the letter form, sometimes at the second half of the second century, refers to the image of God uh, as follows. I quote, God loved humanity for the sake he made the world, to whom he subjected everything on earth, to whom he gave the reason, to whom he gave mind. Them alone he permitted to look up to heaven, them he created in his own image, to them he sent his only son, to them he promised the kingdom in heaven, which he will give to those who have loved him. In general, this passage echoes the biblical creation story, but the image of God is listed uh, as one of the gifts bestowed by the loving God upon humanity. This specific faculty is mentioned, interestingly enough, after other gifts, such as reason, mind, um, and most curious of all, uh, the permission to look up to heaven. 
some, uh, since none of these three form part of the biblical creation story, we are dealing probably with an elaboration of, um, of the uh, narrative of creation. The purpose of Diognetus here is to focus on love and hence the audience is encouraged to reciprocate God's love by loving him in return and by imitating the maker. The author immediately adds that this is not the matter of lording over others. As he says, no one is able to imitate God in this way. On the contrary, these things are contrary to his greatness. But one who takes up the neighbor's burden, one who wishes to benefit someone who is worse off in something in which one is oneself better off, one who provides to those in need um, things that uh, one has received from God and thus becomes God to those who receive them. This is one is uh, an imitator of God. By doing charitable works, a person becomes a God from the uh, small letter God to those who benefit from noble actions. <clears throat> um, is this a part of being created in the image of God? We cannot provide any definitive answer to this question because the author does not specify the image in this way. He does not show much interest in the creation story beyond the reference above. Although such a link is not unlikely in this context, uh, any attempt to further unpack the meaning of the image of God in this context runs the risk of uh, stretching the internal evidence. By way of preliminary conclusion, it may be observed that the writings uh, which we have already looked at namely First Clement, Barnabas, and Diognetus, refer to the concept of Imago Dei within the context of the biblical creation narrative. The first two writings uh, quote explicitly parts of the book of Genesis uh, 1 in its Greek translation. Diognetus, on the other hand, either elaborates the creation narrative on his own or relies on pre-existing tradition. This passage from Diognetus in any case echoes the narrative um, from Genesis 1. As such, all these writings testify to uh, what we can call an anthropological view of the image and likeness of God. Namely, that humanity, being part of this creation, has a privileged position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of creatures and in relation to God. Depending on the purpose of individual writings, each one of them emphasizes different aspects of the image of God. While first Clement introduces it as a dynamic concept, 
a meeting place between human and divine. Barnabas links the image of God to the sun, and Diognetus presents it as one of God's gifts. Uh, this privileged position of humanity is linked with moral responsibility of an individual towards the community or towards neighbors. Uh, all these writings, uh, which we were dealing with so far, do not develop this concept of Imago Dei in depth, as if leaving it for further exploration. So having surveyed the writings mentioned above, we may still be confronted with questions as following. In what the image of God is to be located? Does this image of God involve human body? Is there any difference between uh, the image and likeness of God? Sometimes these terms are used as uh, synonyms. Only later thinkers, including Thomas Aquinas, will offer more comprehensive answers to these and other related questions. Uh, in what follows, I would like to focus on yet another author uh, uh, from uh, that period of time who offers slightly different perspective on the image of God. And now, now we move to Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius, Bishop of Syria, as he himself uh, calls um, or puts it in his letter, is known about, about, um, above all for the seven letters he wrote as prisoner to Rome at the beginning of the second century CE. In the body of his writings, there are only a few quotations from the Old Testament, and none of them derive from the book of Genesis. Unlike the authors of, um, of the writings discussed already, Ignatius does not refer to the creation story in his letters. Neither does he use the terms acon or homoiosis. And yet, his letters are not irrelevant for the subject of our discussion. First of all, Ignatius uh, employs co a cognate term uh, homoioma and a synonym character, uh, which we have already found in First Clement. Uh, and he expresses an idea which may be related to the, uh, to the concept of Imago Dei. The word character appears in a passage from the letter to the Magnesians. Um, and again, you can find uh, quotation um, to Magnesians uh, on your handout. I will read it now. Seeing then that all things have an end, two things together lie before us, death and life. And everyone will go to his own place. For just as there are two coinages, the one of God and the other of the world, 
And each one of them has its own stamp impressed upon it. So the unbelievers bear the stamp of this world, but the faithful in love bear the stamp of God the Father through Jesus Christ, whose life is not in us unless we voluntarily choose to die into his sufferings. In this passage, the Greek term character is translated as a stamp. Explaining this passage, uh, one of the scholars, Wilkers, suggests that the phrase, the stamp of God, um, refers here to the participation in the suffering of Jesus Christ as, um, as the um, presupposition of participation in his life. Uh, this explanation of the phrase uh, is based on the concluding clause of this passage, which refers to Christ's death and suffering, relating it to individual Christian. As such, the meaning of the term character carries strong eschatological and Christological connotation. While this interpretation is supported by the immediate context of the uh, phrase in question, the subsequent passage adds up uh, another connotation to it. Here Ignatius emphasizes the role of Eucharistic community as an indispensable means for participation in the passion and death of Christ. He continues his thought as follows, and uh, I quote, since therefore in the persons mentioned above, I have uh, by faith seen and loved the whole congregation, I have this advice, be eager to do everything in godly harmony. The bishop presiding in the place of God and the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles and the deacons who are especially dear to me, since they have been entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ, who before the ages was with the Father and appeared at the end of time. I skip one sentence and the last sentence goes as follows. Let there be nothing among you that is capable of dividing you, but be united with the bishop and with those who lead as an example and as a lesson of incorruptibility. Ignatius emphasizes here the role of the entire local congregation. In doing so, he employs important term, namely the word typos, translated here as an example. Uh, this is by no means the only possible translation though. The term can also be interpreted as a representation, type, or even an image. At the same time, Ignatius does not refer only <clears throat> to God, but to the whole heavenly realm, as it were, consisting of God, the apostles, and Jesus Christ. This realm is reflected in the Eucharistic assembly, consisting of the bishop, the presbyters, and the deacons, and implicitly the laities. 
Uh, he speaks of the Eucharistic assembly as typos, namely the image of the divine realm. The Eucharistic assembly becomes this image of incorruptibility in as far as it reflects the divine realm. This imagery, which is quite reminiscent of the book of Revelation, establishes a link between two distinct realms, uh, divine and human, or uh, heavenly and earthly. This idea of a close association of the earthly with the heavenly is further strengthened with the presupposition ace, which is followed by uh, an accusative of typos in this passage. Uh, this presupposition is sometimes translated into English uh, as um, uh, with the particle as. Uh, but this translation does not appropriately reflect the potential dynamics presupposed in the passage. In this context, we should prefer a translation into, which better reflects the idea of involvement. Similar imagery and terminology Ignatius uses also in his letter to the Trallians. You can see the um, quotation um, below. So our brief engagement with Ignatian letters has shown that although this author does not refer to the book of Genesis as the previous authors, his writings offer uh, valuable insights concerning the image of God. Ignatius' use of such terms as homoioma and character testified to an anthropological understanding which differs from the writings of First Clement, Barnabas, and Diognetus, inasmuch as Ignatius interprets these concepts eschatologically and Christologically relating the resurrection of the faithful at the end times to the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet his views move beyond this anthropological concept of Imago Dei. The Bishop of Antioch offers an original view of the subject in question, presenting the Eucharistic assembly as an image or even a part of divine realm. To conclude, in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, the concept of Imago Dei appears in several crucial passages, emphasizing views relating to God, to humanity, and to the Church. It's possible to distinguish between two different but not contradicting perspectives on Imago Dei. <clears throat> An anthropological found in, uh, primarily in First Clement, Barnabas and Diognetus, and more ecclesiological, reflected in the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. The anthropological um, uh, the writings of First Clement, Barnabas, and Diognetus 
use the notion of divine image and likeness with reference to the creation narrative from the book of Genesis, bringing both humanity and God into an intimate relationship. From this perspective, Imago Dei has more ethical overtones. Ignatius of Antioch, on the other hand, offers Christological and eschatological understanding uh, of the image of God, broadening its scope to ecclesiology. Uh, this diversity of perspective, uh, perspectives found in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers does not imply any contradiction, but rather testify to the breadth and scope of early Christian thought. Uh, it's worth remembering that all these ideas uh, are relevant also for us today. New realities brought on by the rapid development of technology, artificial intelligence in particular, sometimes challenge the basic views we hold as human beings. It's worth remembering uh, that our rich Christian tradition offers valuable insights into the reality of human existence, declaring that God created humanity in God's own image. In view of this, it's always important to maintain um, our view on, on the sources of our tradition of our rich Christian tradition. Virtually every major crisis in history of the church gave rise uh, to, to a renewal through the return to the sources, ad fontes. And in this presentation, we tried to explore some of the earliest ones. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of, um, of the anthropological view of the image of God at any period of human history, including our own uh, troubled times. As, uh, um, as Bentley Hart pointed out, uh, the most cruel violations of human dignity in the past, such as gas chambers, experimentations on prisoners, um, have only become possible once the perpetrators set aside the view that all human beings are created in the image of God. Um, in this context, it's important to emphasize also the responsibility of uh, different institutions, such as mass media, uh, other institutions, including churches, uh, which inform public opinion about this matter. Uh, this was the case in Soviet Union, uh, in Nazi Germany. This is the case today in Russo-Ukrainian war in which the role of Russian propaganda has been extremely important for the domestic Russian consumer, but also abroad. 
but I'm not going to, to delve into politics, not at least in this moment. Um, at the same time, the eschatological and ecclesiological views of Ignatius, which have received only cursory attentions, attention thus far, may offer also some fascinating and useful avenues for further research. But this would be a topic for another paper. I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Terence, for that fascinating talk. So now it's time for questions. Another question? Um, thank you very much, Father, for your wonderful talk. I was fascinated by your um, sort of juxtaposition of this sort of idea of the image of God um, in the sense of um, human dignity and the image of God as we see it in the body of Christ the Church. Um, and I was wondering um, in whether there might be, in, in terms of a practical application of how we, as Christians, seek to live out, um, live, live out both of these great truths, um, whether, whether you think the, the difference in terms of the, the prepositions that are used, um, in terms of uh, we are made according to kata, the, the, the image and likeness of God, um, this is something which is sort of bestowed on us from above um, by God, and the fact that we are um, going, as, as, as the church, we are going ace into this sort of symbol. Do you think this is a, um, this is something that has an impact on um, how we, how we live as Christians in the world, how we approach both our dignity as human beings and our sense of um, this sort of, our, 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 our union within the church? How, how, how do you think that sort of relates to how we should live our lives as Christians? Absolutely, this should be the case. Um, uh, but uh, I think uh, this um, aspect of Ignatius' uh, view of, uh, of the church um, has not been really explored uh, so much. Uh, so both propositions have not been uh, combined, so to say. Uh, and uh, but obviously this is uh, something which um, uh, each Christian has to has to endeavor to do uh, to do on his own uh, Christian as an individual but also mm. as Christian uh, communities. Uh, so there is an individual responsibility um, and call, I would say, but also uh, communal. And, uh, and we can find uh, the origins of this uh, way of thinking already in the writings of, of the Apostolic Fathers. I, I also have a question similar to Alex's. Something that surprises me in the passage from Ignatius of Antioch is, okay, the bishop is seen as one of the Father, that's in Jerusalem, but the presbyters uh, image of God's counsel and the deacons of the image of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm sure any deacons are delighted. Um, it seems, you know, it seems it would seem intuitive to me that it would be the priests that would be image, the image of the Son, as opposed to the deacons. So, is there a particular reason why that move is being made? 
speaking as as a Ukrainian Eastern Rite priest, um, I can tell you that <clears throat> deacon has much more responsibility in Eastern liturgy than the priest. Uh, so um, I, I have um, faculties to celebrate also Roman Mass. Um, and uh, when I celebrate with the deacon in Roman Mass, uh, priest does all the things. But in Eastern, at least in Byzantine one, uh, deacon does everything and the priest just uh, reads the prayers. <laughs> but uh, I think it's not very relevant for the context of Ignatius of Antioch. So we should um, keep in mind um, the context that his own context is very different from, from our and also from uh, later developments in the church. Um, I think Ignatius is stands at the origins of the formation of, uh, of the threefold structure, but uh, there is no uh, solidified um, idea about that uh, at that time. So um, <clears throat> he, he uses uh, different metaphors which are not always consistent, I would say. Um, but uh, nonetheless, he, uh, he makes this association. He uh, sees the Eucharistic Assembly as a reflection of, of divine realm. And I think that's, that's the final, um, the most important uh, thought in his uh, writings. Um, the, Exact uh, correspondence of uh, of the roles uh, does not does not matter uh, that much, I think, and it depends on the context. It depends what emphasis he he wants to make um, in his in, in his letter. But the main uh, emphasis is on 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 the community, on the unity, uh, which reflects divine unity. So as you hinted a number of times in your talk, the discussion of the image of God in the Apostolic Fathers is kind of frustratingly incomplete. <laughs> They'll touch on something that sounds very interesting yeah. and then abandon the idea. When do you see the first systematic or quasi-systematic treatment of the notion of the image of God? Who's the first thinker that sets down and says the image of God is constituted by this? Um, because obviously that, as you mentioned, Aquinas, people like that did that. Actually, later, I think Augustine did, but what about the in-between? Yeah, I think towards the end of the second century, Irenaeus was one of the champions, um, and he introduced this idea. The distinction, he emphasized the distinction between uh, image and likeness, and he was trying to give his own interpretation. We've seen that he, he was not the first. Um, he, he was maybe one of the first uh, Christian authors, but uh, as I mentioned uh, while discussing um, First Clement, um, Philo of Alexandria, uh, Jewish uh, philosopher, uh, has already made this, uh, this move. So he, he discussed this issue before Irenaeus. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't be surprising if Irenaeus picked up some of, of his ideas. But I, Irenaeus is, is a great theologian of that era. Yeah. 
So what would you say is the relationship between the, the Jewish philosophers and these Christian thinkers? Because it seems to me that in the first three passages here, destroying on the Old Testament, uh, I'm just interested to, to see um, if, what, what the differences, what the similarities might be in this concept between those two camps. Um, <clears throat> I think we need to take each author individually and uh, sure. analyze. Yeah. Um, for example, Ignatius does not show much interest either in, in the Old Testament or, well, for us, it is Old Testament. For early Christians, it was just the scripture. But he does not give many quotations from, from Hebrew Bible. While Clement of Alexandria seems to use quite many quotations, but also some concepts which appear in, uh, in Jewish philosophy uh, of that time. Uh, so it depends on the author. Uh, but <clears throat> the general perception in scholarship was that uh, with the ap apologists uh, from the um, middle of the second century on, uh, Greek philosophy was appropriated, so to say. Before that, it, it wasn't, it was inexistent. In, but this is not really the case. So we have to look at each individual writing and, and see whether we can find traces or um, echoes of, uh, sure. of philosophy there. Yeah. Um, in Clement, how common is the hands focus? Like, is that very original to him, or is he getting that from somewhere else? Um, as far as I remember, I'm not 100% uh, sure, but I think, uh, again, uh, this, uh, um, this uh, emphasis on hands appears in Jewish uh, commentators of the scripture. Yes, but I don't remember okay. at this point. Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you about the liturgy in um, Ignatius and um, what it is in Ignatius's thought that makes the liturgy a particularly good place to see harmony between these different, you know, I guess, different hierarchs of the church, but also um, why the liturgy is a context that's particularly revelatory of what God is like or indeed what human love ought to be. I wonder whether we're thinking in terms of the gestures that the different ministers show towards one another, um, or whether it's about the way they conduct themselves around the altar. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on that, Father, as to what, what it is that it, what it is about the liturgy that makes the, these human interactions revelatory of who God is? We don't know much about Ignatius outside of, of his letters. There are some later traditions which are not, not really reliable. But uh, what, what he does in his letters, what we can draw uh, this little uh, information fr from his letter, letters, um, he emphasizes uh, this connection between life, um, life of charity and, and liturgy. Uh, so it's uh, uh, something which uh, the charitable works um, uh, flow from liturgy um, 
naturally, so to say. Um, and I think this was one of the um, rare occasions, oh, how, how to put it, I think liturgy, especially the Eucharist, it was uh, the central uh, act of worship where uh, community came together. And his central message, one of his central messages was the message of unity, because he, uh, he himself was expelled from Antioch, most probably because of some um, schism within the community. And on his way to, to Rome, he visited different uh, congregations in Asia Minor. Uh, and he saw the situation there. They were torn by uh, schisms, by heresies. And, and he emphasized the importance of unity. And he saw the Eucharist as this uh, um, celebration which brings everyone together. And he, uh, he urges Christians not to form other uh, groups to celebrate your, your Eucharist on your own, form just one under, presided by, by, by the bishop. Uh, so his concern for, for unity, I think, was uh, central in this. Can we think of the Antichonus, uh, the, 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 uh, the second person, the son, um, and, and he's making us according to the image? According to the Akon, hmm. is, is is that a reason, an argument, or just a reason, a fittingness of why it was the second person rather than any other person who became incarnate, as in the sense that he had more affinity with with man, in the second sense of being and being created in, according to the image, and and, and then secondly, what, what, why according to if, if it is a reference to the second person, why what, what, why is man especially created according to the the, the second person. I'm not entirely sure I understand the well, question. You, you, you talk about the yeah, distinction between yeah. um, man being the image and man yeah. being made according to the yeah, image. Yeah. And if we think about the image being uh, the uh, Christ in terms of the, mm. the word being the, the image of the, the, the Margot, the image of the invisible God. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, my, my question was, um, is that a reason why it was fitting for the second person to become incarnate? In that's a relationship with, with uh, human creation. And secondly, mm -hmm. um, when, when man is according, is according to the image, if that's referring to the second person, then, then what is it about the second person? Is it sort of intellect or, or new source of what do you think is that? Yeah, well, that's that's a question. This is a good question, <clears throat> but uh, I'm afraid we don't have definite answers with regard to. Um, so, what is um, according to the image? Um, the author himself does not make uh, explicit um, reference to Christ that Christ is the image, and according to his image. Um, humanity is uh, uh, is formed in this uh, in this writing. Uh, there is only the dialogue between uh, God the Father and and the Son, 
and uh, they decide the two persons decide to to create uh, humanity but it's not uh, explicit there that uh, humanity is created in the image later on later authors patristic authors make uh, make this um, um, statement uh, so Cyril of Alexandria uh, he speaks about um, uh, about Christ as the first uh, image um, of God and according to this image uh, humanity was formed but not uh, not the apostolic fathers uh, not yet um, and of course uh, uh, this is um, well it's a question of uh, uh, Eck and Hen uh, who was the first uh, because uh, the son is the second person, uh, is he, therefore, uh, is the image uh, according to which humanity is created? Or uh, uh, let me put it differently. Um, so um, Cyril of, of Alexandria says that um, even before the incarnation, uh, Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, uh, was the image of, of God, um, even uh, for the creation of humanity. Uh, so this is, uh, this is something which, uh, uh, which was developed in, in the later um, uh, patristic tradition, but but not uh, not at that that stage. If, if that's uh, an answer to the question. Um, I have one question, if I may, which is yes. Um, am I right in thinking that uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa was the first person to call for the universal abolition of the slave trade, based on uh, an appeal to the image of God? Could be, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need to keep in mind the um, context of early fathers and our context, which are very different. Can everyone join me in time?